You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 57 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Honestly, I am relieved, Valerie. Why is that? Because my children are finally back at school. (laughs) And I love them and we have an enormous amount of fun together, but I get absolutely not one single thing done when they're around. So I'm, you know, kind of excited. (laughs) And for those of us who emailed and tweeted us last week, yes, we did skip a week because of school holidays, but we're back. We are back. All is well. I'm sorry, team. It was just a perfect storm of Valerie travelling overseas and me not going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) But I know know who was having a better time. (laughs) Far more exciting things were happening to you, Al, because everywhere I turn, you have been on some kind of incredible list, you know, shortlisted for this, shortlisted for this, you know, what, what lists have you been on? Well, apart from my own to-do list, which, you know, was what I originally thought you were talking about when you said we were going to discuss this. Um, the most exciting thing that happened to me over the last couple of weeks, apart from school holidays, was that the Mapmaker Chronicles Race to the End of the World, which is the first book, made the Book of the Year Awards Notables List 2015 for the Children's Book Council of Australia Awards, Woo-hoo! which is pretty much basically like it's like making the long list. And um, I was extremely excited, as you can imagine, because you know what happens now? What? I get a sticker. (laughs) I get a sticker. I know. It's like I rang my mom and I said, oh, mom, I've made this list. And she goes, what does it mean? I said, I get a sticker. She goes, stickers are always good. I'm like, yep, (laughs) they're always good. You mean a sticker on the book? I get a sticker on the book. Right. on, On every book, as opposed to like they give you a sticker and you put it on your pencil case. Well, I'm going to put one on my pencil case as well, <laughs> just because I can, possibly on my laptop, you know, on my yes. iPad, everywhere. But yeah, no, on the cover, you, you have the right to put the sticker on the cover of your book. Awesome. Congratulations. Really That's exciting. fantastic. Yeah. Yes. And also, should, I should mention too that um, Tristan Banks, who we, of course, interviewed in one of our earliest podcasts yes. about his book, Two Wolves. We interviewed yes. him just as the book was coming out. His book has been shortlisted, so he has made the top six, which is very, very exciting. And also, Judith Russell, Russell, sorry, every time I do that, I want to call her Russell, and she keeps telling me, Alison, it's straightforward, plain old Russell. Um, <laughs> Her book, she, of course, is a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre and her book, Withering by Sea, also made the shortlist for my section, which is very, very exciting. So, you know, we are in some fine company. Yeah, congratulations to everyone. I know. It was a a Mm. big day all round. It really was. See, you had more exciting things than me. Oh, 
Well, yeah, but it's such a it's such a bizarre thing, you know, because there's all this stuff going on. And do you know what was happening when I was making the, the when while I was making the Children's Book Council of Australia Notables list? Do you Tell know me. what I was actually doing? Tell me. I was at the hairdressers with my two boys arguing over how much hair would be cut off their heads at any particular time. Oh. <laughs> That's what I was doing. That is the glamorous life of the author. What oh, can wonderful. I say? But they looked awesome when I walked out and I was cheering because I was on a list. <laughs> well, this is not so glamorous, but oh. it's certainly interesting, I okay. think. Right. Um, and that's a couple of events that uh, I'm partnering with General Assembly in Sydney and Melbourne to conduct some discussion on the future of media, how tech is disrupting journalism, because there's so much happening in the world of journalism these days, you know, with journalists competing with bloggers, but also the uh, advent of citizen journalism and so many platforms now where you can upload a a video or you can report on something you know and, and and that it's so immediate in these days with the online world that the future of journalism as we know is just changing dramatically so I'm just really keen to explore that and I'm sh- and I know a lot of people are as well so we've got a couple of events um, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney and we're going to have different people like Marina Go, who's the general manager of uh Hurst Bauer Media, but also um, uh, Jenny Ryle, the editor, the Australian editor of Mashable, and Steph Harmon, the managing editor of Junkie, and we're all going to be discussing the future of media and you know the disruption of journalism. So wow. that should be interesting. That'll be, a, that'll be a great conversation. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. It's uh, the twenty third of April in Sydney, but uh, and then a week later in uh, sorry, twenty third of April in Melbourne, and a week later in Sydney. So we'll put the link in the show notes. Great. There you go. But let's move on to our links this week. What have you got for me, Valerie? Okay. What have you found in your trawling through the internet? Well, the lovely Liz has actually sent us this great link from Board Panda <laughs> on twenty-four brilliant new words we should add to a dictionary. <laughs> now, I think Macquarie and or you know Webster's haven't quite added these words yet, but you never know because it's quite surprising sometimes the things they do add to their dictionary. <laughs> the, the number one word, <laughs> as determined by Board Panda anyway, is Ask hole. Oh. <laughs> Someone who asks many stupid, pointless or obnoxious questions. Yeah, okay. I've met a few of those in my time. Oh, yes. The uh, one that I, that I love and which I do on a regular basis is bedgasm. <laughs> Just, do, we, do we want to talk about this? It's very innocent. It's the feeling of euphoria experienced when climbing into bed at the end of a very long day. Oh, yes, I have that on a regular basis myself. I have to say that what I probably experience most in this household, though, is number four, the yes. chair drobe, oh, yes. which is piling clothes on a chair in place of a closet or dresser, but also see in my boys' rooms floor drobe because <laughs> I pretty much see that a lot as well. I have a chair drobe. I absolutely have a chair Everyone, drobe. Who doesn't have it? Oh, mind you, you know what? What we actually have is a bed drobe because we just throw it. We've got like a, you know, high ends on both the bed, both ends of the bed. So we just sort of tend to fling them oh, over the end of the bed, yeah, which yeah. is even worse, really, when you think about it. Yeah, I'm trying to, to stop the chair drobe. But um, do you suffer from this, though? This is a great one. Do you suffer from text 
expectation. I do. The anticipation felt when waiting for a response to a text. I do. I have, uh, you know what? I think most authors suffer from email pectation, though, because oh, you know, you're yeah. sitting around waiting for emails to come back to you saying, yeah. we love your book, we want to publish it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're still but, you waiting know, for that. We could go on forever, but it's a great list, and we'll put the link in the show notes. But uh, there are some words that uh, we think that should be should be added to you know the dictionary. If you've got some words that you think should be added to the dictionary, do ping us on social media and let us know. Yes, please do. So the other link that I found was 15 essential time-saving tools for busy writers. And this is from a website called The Book Designer and it's by Joel Freelander. And he has written, you know, a number of different apps ranging from Scrivener to Google Apps to Grammarly, you know, uh, and Evernote. But I wanted to ask you, Al, Mm -hmm. what would be your essential time-saving tool or tip for busy writers? I use Evernote for everything. Um, I just, like, it's because it syncs across everything and I don't have to actually, like, be forwarding and thinking and what am I going to do next and all that sort of stuff. I actually use it um, for writing a lot when I'm walking around and I have an idea, as you do, because you know I walk a lot with the dog and with the whatever, and I, it's kind of active meditation. I I write it down on the spot and then I know that I'm not going to forget about it. So I use that a lot. And I also use it just for, like, if I'm sitting in a swimming lesson waiting, you know, while the boys are going up and down the pool and I'm not doing much of anything, I um, I, I will sit in the car and write stuff then yeah. because otherwise – Otherwise, it's just wasted time. Like why have all that wasted time when you can be using it for something useful? So that would be probably, that's my favourite of those, of the tools that he has, you know, listed there, I would say. Do you know what? What Well, I would probably say the same thing because I find it confounding when writers say to me, oh, but I don't have the time to, you know, sit at my desk and and write. Like, well, you don't have to sit at your desk. You can do it on your mobile device. You can do it in the car, as you've just said. You can do it in a notebook. Or a notebook, yes, exactly. (laughs) The only reason I don't use a notebook is that, as we know, as we've discussed at length, I can't read my own handwriting. But (laughs) if I could... I would just simply, because, you know, notebooks are pretty easy to carry around. Mm. Um, but, yes, Evernote is much, much better for people like me who type much, much faster than they can write. So works the, for me. For me, it's the mere fact that whether you type or not, I mean, the, the mere fact that it syncs across all devices, which means you yeah. have no excuse. You yeah. can literally do it on your phone. You could do it on your iPad. You can yeah. do it on your desktop. You can do it on your laptop or whatever. Yeah. So if You can just it, pop up the same document across wherever you are and get yeah. on with it. And I guess Google Docs is also good for that too. Like that's another one that works really well if you if you know you want to be working on one document across a whole range of different um, devices or whatever, Google Docs is great. Like we use that a lot for our platform, you know, for planning our um, podcasts and things like that because everyone can access it and that makes it really easy too. Exactly. Mm. But I do find Evernote just that little bit easier. It's slightly less clunky and that's why. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a nice app, isn't it? I know you love an app. (laughs) <laughs> I do Let's love that. But the other link that I have, I came across a, um, a, a link called The Coffee Shop Writer and mm. it's Jane Costello says that she's a coffee shop writer from a website called We Heart Writing. And basically one of the things that she's saying is that she, you know, to, to get her and, – and I was speaking to Nicole Hayes who we've interviewed for an upcoming podcast who says a similar thing is that, you know, she does, you know, drop the kids' school or whatever 
then go to a, a, a coffee shop. And Nicole Hayes, when I was speaking to her, make sure she goes to one without Wi-Fi. Mm. so that she can't have emails. She's not about to go on social media and she sits there and she writes. And what um, Jane has said is that she will do that and she will sit there for, you know, two and a half hours and write two and a half thousand words. And guess what? After two and a half hours, two and a half... Two 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 thousand five hundred words are done, and she just gets to go home and do all the other things that she needs to do. Mm. Do you do you work in cafes? Oh no, I can't work in cafes. I've tried because I really love the idea of it. I, you know what I do in cafes? I, I often do the same thing. I drop the kids at school and I will go down to a cafe. But you know what I do? I do, um, because you know I do social media for the writer centre, but also for other clients. I do um, bits and pieces. I go and do that in cafes. Like I'm happy to load tweets up, you know, do engage with social media, do some, um, uh, I, I do those kinds of tasks. Well, why can't I, I you write in a cafe? Write. It's just not my space. It's too, I, I write, you know, I do my best writing at my desk in total silence, staring at my wall. I'm like Pavlov's dog. I need to be <laughs> in the spot. I, and once I'm in the spot, I'm in the zone. But I get all the other stuff out of the way first at a cafe. Like I will do all the social media stuff, my own stuff, other people's stuff, all done. Then I come back to my desk and then I sit down and I write. Right. So yeah. I actually do it in reverse. Yeah, I love a cafe. I know you do. Oh. I remember you talking about that that app that made cafe noises in yeah. the background. Yeah, no, it doesn't work for me. And, you know, the other problem is, and I think that this is maybe a small town thing, if I go and sit in a cafe, I'm going to run into someone I know uh, all yes. the time. There's always someone I know. And so then I sit down and I have a chat and I catch up and I do whatever and then, you know, an hour and a half has gone past and I've done nothing. So. Yeah. I, I tend to sort of treat my cafe time quite I schedule it in and yeah. No. Well, I guess for me living in the big smoke, if yeah. I go to a cafe, I actually feel anonymous. Yeah, no. I'm you're not anonymous mm. in Fibro Town in a cafe. No way. I- Bet not. Okay, so our next link this week is just really a shout out to um, Paula Hawkins, the girl who wrote, who of course has written The Girl on the Train. Have you written The Girl on, have you, not written, (laughs) have you read The Girl on the Train yet? Um, I, I have, yes, I've started reading it. And oh, I, okay. <laughs> I know. I yeah. I'm the only Expand. person in the world that started reading it and then put it down and never went back to it. Wow. Um, yeah. I, okay. I finished it, and I, everyone keeps telling me it's amazing, but I just wasn't. Um, I wasn't engaged enough yet. But it might just have been the timing of when I started it or something. I don't know. Yeah. So I, I, I put it down and I read. Um, all the light we cannot see, which has just been announced as a Pulitzer Prize winner. And as it was like my favourite book of the last, I don't know how many years, Mm. I'm feeling quite good about myself Um, because that was an amazing book. And then I read The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert, which I also loved. Mm. Um, And, yep, I haven't gone back to it. Sorry. That's all right. Well, this is a shout-out really because it is apparently um, likely to be the fastest-selling adult novel in history. Yeah. Like it's currently sold 1.5 million, I believe. It's amazing. I bought it on the day it was. I had read so much about it, like I'd seen so much hype around it in the in the weeks leading up to its release. I mm. bought it on the day it was available. Mm. Like I, I went out and bought it because I thought I've got to read this. I've heard so much about it, and then I just haven't, you know, 
Yes. Well, it might be the fastest selling adult novel in history, but it may not be the most read, (laughs) clearly. No, well, no, I don't think so because I think lots of people, I know lots of people that have read it and absolutely loved it. You know, I'm actually thinking it's possibly a fault in my reading capabilities at the time as opposed to the actual book itself. But um, yeah, like tell us what you think, people. Like if you've read it, I would love to hear what you think. Like should I persist with it? Do I need to finish it? Um, or or not? Did you go out and buy it because you heard about it like I did? Like I, it, It's an interesting thing. I saw it all on social media too. People who say social media doesn't sell books. Oh, it I'm does. I'm sorry. But absolutely. It absolutely does. It doesn't sell books if you're bleating on about your own book constantly, mm. buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. But if other people are talking about your book, oh, my Lord, it sells absolutely. books. Yeah. I definitely go and buy books after I've seen so some friends I. of mine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, bought, I, I read The Signature of All Things because I couldn't ignore it anymore. Mm. I tried really hard to ignore it because I hated it. Eat, pray, love so much. <laughs> but so many people were talking about that book. I thought, oh, I'm going to have to give it a go. And I'm mm. so glad I did because I really loved it. So anyway. an- another author who has written a ton load of books is uh, one who has done that, done so via Amazon. And that's a link that you've got. I believe it's Mark yeah. Dawson. Yes. Well, this was one of those, um, this was a fantastic link bait heading that I couldn't <laughs> resist because that's the kind of girl I am. Amazon pays $450,000 a year to this self-published writer. <laughs> a year. That, that was the link. And wow. I went, well, I need to find out who that is. So in I went. And it was quite an interesting thing. Um, Mark Dawson, I never heard of him, um, who <laughs> is a self-publishing success story. So Amazon had put him into the London Book Fair to talk to journalists about how self-publishing can work for you. And, you know, basically he was talking about the fact that, you know, he sold over 300,000 copies of his series about an assassin called John Milton. Mm -hmm. And this particular article talks about his, um, you know, his road to success. And the thing that I liked about the article and about Mr. Dawson is the fact that he's really realistic about how it happened. You know, he, he gave the book away for free to start with and he managed to, you know, he, he got 50,000 downloads over one weekend of his free book, wow. which is awesome, except it made him no money yeah. and he's, you know, quite, you know, upcoming, so forth, forthcoming about that. And so then he talked about the fact that, you know, it's basically the write, publish, repeat method of um, making money on Amazon. He quickly wrote another five or six books and and so became a success story. But clearly they're good books because you can write five or six books on Amazon and make zero cash um, if they're not the kinds of things that people actually want to read. So he's actually obviously writing things that people want to read. But he also talks about the fact that he puts an awful lot of time into promotion and that he considers himself to be an entrepreneur as much as Mm. a writer, which Mm. I think is quite interesting. So you read through the... um, um, Read through the article. I mean, he says he credits his success to his unusual attitude towards publishing. He approaches it like a business. Yeah. One in which writing is just a single cog in the media machine. Yeah, I think a book is seminars. He engages with all his fans. He advertises and he talks about the fact that he uses Facebook advertising, which a lot of a lot of authors, you know, seem to feel like advertising is cheating or something, so they won't do it. But he is putting $370 a day into Facebook advertising. 
And he's receiving double that in a return on investment. That's right. So no matter what amount he puts into Facebook advertising, if he's receiving double that in return, it's a good return. That's it's an excellent return. Mm. So, yeah. So, I mean, like, what do you think about the about stories like this? Do you think they're helpful? Well, I think they're reality. I think that a book is a business and the more authors who think of it that way, who think about everything else apart from the writing, the more successful it's going to be. Of course, some authors think, no, I don't want to do that. I want to only concentrate on the writing. I want my publisher to deal with that. And that's fine, but you will forever be you know, relegated <laughs> to a situation where if but all things are equal and you've got an author who will think about their book entrepreneurially and rely on their publisher as well compared to an author who won't, well, who's going to come out ahead if everything else is equal? So mm. I think that it's, it's good to have this kind of, uh, you know, these kind of stories out there so that some authors can start thinking about what else they might be able to do. It doesn't have to, you know, take a lot of time. It doesn't have to cost money. You don't have to put $370 a day into Facebook Ooh. advertising, uh, but to just start thinking differently beyond the writing. Yes. Do something. Like it's yes. something is better than nothing, isn't it? I would have thought, but anyway. I think so. That would just be anyway. me. So our writing book <clears throat> this week is Why Is Q Always Followed By You? <laughs> is this another one of your nerdy little books? <laughs> you do love these, don't you? Tell us right. what you've got. Michael Quinion. So he's yes. of, his last name is obviously something he's been thinking about all his life. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Quinion says, why is Q always followed by you? Word perfect answers to the most asked questions about language. And basically the book is full of all of these, you know, things like where does the word hackneyed come from? How about where does cockles of your heart come from? Where does by and large come from? Um, scuttlebutt. Uh, here's scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt, as we know, is gossip. The second half is easy, but is the old word for a large cask from Latin buttus, as in a cask or wine, or wine skin. And the first half, so scuttle, appears in the language in several senses with different origins. So we have to be sure we've got the right one. It's not the flattish open container made of wickerwork. Uh, that's old English. Nor is it to move, you know, with quick steps like a spider, you know, to scuttle. Uh, this... The, the one it is, is refers to a hole cut in a ship's timbers. There Heavens you go. Heavens to Betsy. There now, you go. Now you can sleep tonight. Well, this, so this guy, Michael Quinion, mm -hmm. is also the author of Port Out, Starboard Home, which you also yes. – you're a fan. You're a groupie. <laughs> and can you tell me why is Q always followed by you? Have you read that bit? I haven't got up to that bit yet. Oh, <laughs> Valerie. Are you kidding me? I should have, shouldn't I? You should have, really. <laughs> Oops. Come back to us next week with that, will you? Okay. Let us know. That will be good. <laughs> so who is our writer in residence this week? Well, our writer in oh, I really enjoyed this discussion. I can't mm. tell you how much I enjoyed this discussion. So our writer in residence this week is Rachel Power. Mm. Um, now, Rachel first came across, sort of came into my world a few years ago. She wrote a book called The Divided Heart, which is about – uh, was about, you know, writing and motherhood. And um, it was a really interesting book. And I first read about it because Mia Friedman um, tweeted about it and was like, you've got to read this book. It's amazing. And I thought, okay. So I had a look. And 
Um, I really, really enjoyed it. It's a series of interviews with artists who are also mothers and it talks about how they fit it in and what they do and all of those sorts of things. Now, she has recently brought out a new version, a new edition of the book called Creativity and Motherhood, The Divided Heart. And again, it's terrific. It's um, some of the same interviews um, plus some new ones and it takes in sort of creativity in all its different forms, um, art, music, you know, craft, all sorts of different things. And um, it was really, really interesting. So we, of course, have had a very, very long and involved discussion about, you know, uh, well, you know, writing and motherhood and um, the sort of the, the, the divided heart, the way that, the, that your passion for your art and your passion for your children can collide and cause, you know, all sorts of ructions within you. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Rachel Power is a Melbourne-based writer and editor. In 2002, she published her book called Alison Rayfish, A Life for Art, and then followed that up in 2008 with The Divided Heart, Art and Motherhood, featuring conversations with some of Australia's most prominent writers, artists and musicians about combining the twin passions of art and motherhood. In recent weeks, a new edition of the book called Creativity and Motherhood, The Divided Heart, has been released. So welcome to our podcast, Rachel. Thanks so much, Alison. So let's talk about how you came to write The Divided Heart, Art and Motherhood in the first place. Where did your interest Mm -hmm. in this subject come from? Um, It came from my own personal experience, really, of um, being fresh out of art school. I already worked as a journalist for a number of years. I went back to university in my early 20s, um, studied part-time and by my final year of university I was pregnant with my first child. Wow. So in a way I didn't really get that chance to build up a creative career which is what I was hoping to do post, um, post-study. So I um, found myself um, straight out of art school, new baby and just feeling that um, I had It was a shock. I had no idea that babies could just eat time the way that they do (laughs) and I could barely manage a, you know, one piece of toast, let alone um, pen a short story. And I started thinking um, that I wanted to know how other women were managing to do it. So I started looking around, for example. I'd already studied art history and so I knew pretty well that there was a disproportionate number of um, women artists who were childless, particularly I'd studied uh, painting. So um, you just have to look at the list of famous yeah. female Australian painters to recognise that barely a single one of them has children, at least historically speaking. Yes. Um, and I wanted to find out if things had changed for women and how much they changed and if they had changed, why and how. Okay. So what... How did you begin the process? Did you start by making a wish list of people that you wanted to speak to? Did you put a proposal together for the book first? What What did you, you know, no. how, what was the impetus? How did you go forward with it? Yeah, I was flying blind a bit. I suppose because I'd had all those years as a journalist, one thing I knew how to do was track someone down and get an interview. So <laughs> I, 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 I applied that really. And in a way, yeah, it was like a, a wish list of sorts. So I... I um looked for women that I thought were interesting with children. Often they were women who'd already publicly spoken a little bit on the subject or even just made a single remark in an interview and I'd followed it up. And I started um, trying to contact 
women and see if if I could meet with them for an hour and have a chat. And I really had no idea at that point what I was going to do with it. I thought perhaps an article... I, I was really just on my own um, path with trying to find out uh, what, whether there was something of interest here, whether this was just my problem mm-hmm. or whether this might actually be a more universal experience. Did you find, because this is a question that I'm often asked by sort of new freelance writers, let alone people who are trying to write a book, when you approach people saying to them, look, I, I'm exploring this subject, because, um, you know, you, you spoke to several people with, you know, with pro, we're talking about people with profiles here. Um, how, what did you say to them? Like, I'm thinking about putting together a book. How did you convince them to give you their time? Mm. Interestingly enough, you don't always know who's going to be really difficult to get to and who's going to be really easy. You would think Rachel Griffiths, who's one of the first people I approached, you would have to go through a tunnel of gatekeepers. I sent her an email via her agent and I got a response directly back from her within I think 48 hours which was really unusual yeah really and I think that's because she wanted to talk about the subject and so I think I got lucky in that this was actually uh, I to take it back a bit I I suppose I did write a message saying I want to look at this subject I'm I don't I want to look at it seriously. This is a chance to really have a conversation about the impact of children on your creative life. I want to get underneath or past the kind of glib magazine, um, beautiful life stuff. Mm. I don't want to have a superficial conversation. I I really just want to know your experience. Mm. And I think, I mean, the interesting thing is that there's a difference between the profoundly personal and the profoundly um, pub public I suppose Mm. what what am I trying to say what I'm trying to say is that I feel like you can talk at a very deep level about your experience without having to actually expose anything private about your family yes and that that's what I I I wasn't asking for that something different between personal and private that's what I'm trying to say yes I understand Um, yep so I um I found it actually quite easy to approach people not many people rejected my approach except for those women who really didn't want to make the fact of being a mother part of their public profile who were really trying to keep away from that which is also understandable but in terms of how other people might do it I think um, most people are very reachable especially now with social media and um, obviously people with a high public profile you will have to go via their agents and they're all their manager, but it's usually pretty easy to find out those details online. Yeah. And you just give it a go. I mean, they'll say yes or no. That's Well, which I think is fantastic advice because that's what I often say to people. You you can't make assumptions as to what someone will agree to do or what they won't until you are, you have to ask them. And it's amazing. I think people will generally try to be helpful if they can, generally. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my experience. No one ignored me. I, I don't think. Um, maybe Nicole Kidman's agent ignored me. <laughs> there might be one or two. <laughs> um, fair enough. And, and the, you know, I mean, which is fair enough. They, they'd get flooded. Yeah. But I think um, on the whole, I got a, a, fr- a friendly and, you know, thoughtful response from almost everybody. And uh, I think 
Um, if it speaks to them, chances are they'll be interested in talking to you. If you've got a subject that they haven't had a chance to talk about before, yep. or they feel like they haven't spoken about already somewhere else, yep. um, and they have something to say on it, chances are they will say yes. All right, so when that first book came out, what was the response to that first edition of The Divided Heart? Well, the re- I mean, interestingly, the response from the, the women I sought to interview was similar to the response I got from readers, which was quite a surprise to me, which was a real, thank God someone's finally talking about this. Yes, the, the fact of having children has had a profound impact on my creative life, good and bad. Mm. We, it's not a book of complaint, and I don't want it to be seen that way. It's mm. definitely about the the difficulties and the benefits of having children to a creative life. And um, there was a sense that there was a gap there. And so my my feeling, that the personal feeling that there'd been a gap there for me was actually true for other people, which is always nice when you feel that there actually has been a universal resonance and you've met some need out there. Mm. So um, I feel like... Obviously, a book like this is never going to be for everybody. It's got its very particular readership. Yeah. But of that readership, there was a real hunger for this information. So it was really lovely that it was a book that spoke directly to people that caused an emotional response. It meant I got huge numbers of letters and emails. I feel like I've heard from almost every reader I've got. (laughs) It's one of those books that, you know, it may not have sold in the hundreds of thousands at all, but it, it it means something to that small readership that it's got and you you can't hope for more than that really. Well, I think the thing about it was, um, and we were speaking about this before we pressed record, but I read the book when it came out and I read it because uh, Mia Friedman had spoken about it and she's uh, got a blurb on the cover of the new edition. Um, but I think it was one of those situations where I think anyone who is in that situation will read a book like this and go, I'm not, it, it, it's not just me. And I think that that's possibly, it's, it's like it gives you permission to, to realise that the way that you feel about this, you know, this being torn thing that you can have with it is, um, is not just you because I think women feel so guilty <laughs> about everything that mm. that feeling can be you, you've just you feel like you, you're the only selfish person in the whole world who isn't just yeah. you know throwing yourself into motherhood with gay abandon and I think that that's <laughs> um possibly what I took from it when I first read it was oh thank god I'm not alone <laughs> yeah oh that's that's really good to hear and I think that's exactly right and I got letters along that line that this is the first time someone I mean I, mean, I think Hopefully people have communities of, you know, fellow, um, well, just friends around them who are understanding and who you can be honest with. But I think it is a particular issue. I mean, I got, when I first approached publishers, I did get that question a lot of, well, why artists? Why are you so special? You know, why not all working mothers? And aren't they all struggling with the guilt and with the work-life balance issues and so on which is true and I mean nicely enough I've had letters from scientists and someone as well who actually found something in this book as well because Mm. they've also got a driving passion that they're struggling to get at yeah that's right I think though 
I mean, firstly, there are a lot of books out there on working motherhood, working mothers, and work-life balance. I'm not saying artists are special. Um, I just didn't feel that there was something out there specifically for them. Mm. And I do think it's particular. I think it's a particular experience that was worth exploring. And I think that's because, art, well, lots of reasons. Art is a is a fundamental driving passion often for a lot of people. Mm. It's It's quite obsessive. And usually you've been able to do that. Um, in a very different way than before you have children. And it's also very rare that it pays. So there is a different set of dilemmas. I think it's also, for me, it's it's often felt like a third shift. It's often like, yeah. I think for a lot of people, for particularly, you know, if you, you know, you have to do the food on the table stuff. So you're working and then you are also 24-7 parenting. Um, and then there's this drive in you that that wants to paint or write or, you know, whatever it is you do, garden or, you know, make ceramics, whatever it is that you do. And um, that always feels like something that is a, an extra. And I think that maybe that's where it comes from too because it feels mm. like something that you should not be so excited about, you know, that you would no, actually like right. not spend time with your children <laughs> so that you could go and do that. I think maybe yeah. that's partly what it is. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, Joanna Murray-Smith calls it the third shift. Mm. I call it the fourth shift. Ooh. I actually, because I think housework's the third shift. Oh, I don't even I mean, do that. And I suppose you can, <laughs> yeah, well, lots of people say that. But, you know, even if you don't do it, there is a certain point at which, you yeah, know. Yeah, you have to. It's true. You need a clean dish. Or... It's true. No, you're right. So, you do. I do I mean, do I, it. I feel like, um, actually, in, in what, in when you have children, it's not the having children part in many ways that's, that's the shock. It's the workload that comes with it. I mean, in some ways, having having the children is yeah, not always, but often the lovely part of the whole picture. I mean, the the housework was mm. just. I, I was I was quite overwhelmed by how how could there be yeah, so much washing? Yeah, how can you have to do a load of washing every single day, or you start drowning and fold it? So, um, What's that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I yeah, I, I really definitely see this as a fourth shift and particularly, I suppose, for myself, because I work full-time as well in a, in a paid job, yeah. it very much is, I feel like, that's right, I'm already doing two full-time jobs and they're trying to fit these other things in around mm. the edges. Mm. And they do get just stuffed in around the edges. That's right. And I think it's, it's a mixed thing, I suppose, from my own experience and from talking to other women is that you can see why it's a point at which you could just so easily give it away. And mm. that has historically what what's too often happened, sadly, because um, I think it was, I think it might have been Alice Munro that said that this, this is the point at which so many women fall silent because mm. you're already so overwhelmed that actually yeah. the discipline required to keep doing that creative work is really massive and it's almost like a sort of struggle against the self I think it is you push you have to push yourself to do it um because if you don't push yourself to do it then you as you say you you give in and you walk away yeah Mm. and every moment that you get to yourself is basically bought borrowed borrowed or stolen you know what Mm. that's like I mean Kate Kennedy in this edition of the book says something fantastic about how every time she got a chance to write which was when she paid for a babysitter or put her child in childcare for 
a few hours. It was like writing with a taxi sitting outside with its meter running. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great image. It's very true. It was. It's a perfect analogy. That's how it can feel. And it's very pressurized. And and I think also when you're confronted with, particularly when your baby's are very small and you might get an hour or if you're lucky two hours to yourself it's very hard to justify spending that wrestling with a blank page when you've got mountains of washing and dishes in the sink you know and also maybe, because that's much more realizable and achievable sometimes right. than, than and also writing there's with that no whole thing outcome of, of maybe you should just lie down and have a rest like there's you know All you, that that's yeah, what goes get some sleep yeah that's what goes for me that's what I lost sort of like I would make a joke about it on my website but yeah I gave up sleep pretty much when my children were born <laughs> I just no, stopped. Right. And people tell you to sleep. I mean, I remember early on all the midwives would say, when your baby sleeps, you sleep too. That's when you should get your sleep. Mm. I think sleep, I mean, apart from the fact that the house is completely out of control, when when would I ever write if I didn't write when my babies were asleep? Yeah, so true, so true. Anyway, so let's, um, let's talk about the new edition. Mm. Why did you decide to update the book? Um, it takes in creativity of all different kinds. And, you know, what what made you decide that the book needed an update? Um, the book went out of print quite a while ago now, mm-hmm. the first edition, and that just was very upsetting to me because I had a lot of people writing to me trying to find a copy and I knew there was a lot of people out there who couldn't get their hands on a copy. And I went through that process of thinking about whether I should self-publish it. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a lot of capital and I really felt like it deserved a publisher too and that kind of backing. And I, um, But I wanted it to be something new. So I started seeking out a new publisher and fortunately found one in Aviva Tuffield, who's my editor at Affirm Press. Mm-hmm. And she really took it on. She's been a bit of a champion of the the subject, mm-hmm. which has been great. And she, um, I really was guided by her in her feeling too that it really needed to be an update. Early on, it was just going to be an additional couple of interviews and then it grew and grew and we kept thinking of new people who could be in it. And so I had to make some pretty tough choices. And oh, yeah. in some ways I left those to the editor actually in mm-hmm. terms of who stayed in the new edition and um, in order to allow us to have some new voices in there. Mm. Because I, I felt very attached to the first edition and I didn't lose any interviews easily. So, um, I, yeah, I, I guess Aviva had to make some of the tougher choices. But I think it means that it's a book that even those who've read the first edition, um, it will still have value, new value for them. Yeah. And has the response been like, so we, we've kind of moved on, what, seven or eight years since the first one came out. Has there been any difference in the response that you've received this time around? Well, it's only—it's not even... Oh, it's um, only just coming out, isn't it? It's only yeah. just coming out. It, yeah. it hit bookshops, I think, yesterday, but, you know, bookshops yeah, can take yeah. a while to actually get the book on the shelf. So yeah. I don't even know um, that anyone's seen it yet. Oh, okay. So I feel very privileged. Maybe That's right, maybe you. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, it... It's already getting a lovely response from those people who've sort of stuck with me in on my blog and so on in being engaged in the issues. Um, but 
I'll, I'll wait to see what the actual response is. Oh, well, maybe if our listeners have um, read the book or um, have, have, it, have it to hand, you guys can let us know what you think because I'd be really interested on, you know, your thoughts on the whole on the whole thing. But um, let's talk about the actual putting of the book together. Um, now, there's, you know, interviewing is something that is very close to my heart and my theory with interviewing has always been that you get the best response if you ask the right questions um, mm. and that putting, your, you know, your questions together is, is takes, you know, that, that's where you really got to put your thought process in. But mm. what, um, you know, can you tell me a little bit about how you interviewed for this book? Like, did you spend a lot of time mm. with these people or how did you go about that? Uh I, I totally agree with you. I think coming to the right questions is so important. I also have another theory, but this is only, um, not that it's my own theory, I mean, I'm sure it's nothing new to anyone who's who's used to interviewing. Um, and it's only really right for certain kinds of interviews, but mm-hmm. I felt that if you give something of yourself, then, mm-hmm. then the other person can meet you there. Yeah. And I did a huge amount of research before I even started interviewing people. I read and read and read. I read biographies by women artists. I read everything I think I could get my hands on that had already been written about the subject Mm -hmm. so that when I went into interviewing people, I kind of had that whole backlog of information that I could bring to the conversation, Mm. even if they never saw it. But I suppose... uh, um, I could go into it feeling like I really had my head around the subject so that if they raised an issue, sometimes I could even bring in a quote from another writer on, mm. on that, that that they might find interesting and respond to. So uh, I brought in that, but I also just brought in my own profound interest, I suppose, in the subject and in what they had to offer on it. Mm. So uh, often I would go into those, um, interviews, telling them a little bit about, without wanting to, you know, use up too much of their time or take it over, telling them a little bit about where I was at so that hopefully they could kind of meet me at that same level because I wanted, I wanted a, um, I haven't got a better word for deep, which is such an annoying word, but anyway, a deep, I didn't want a superficial interview because it's a book. It's not a, it's not a news article. Mm. So it really, I felt like I needed to get something really solid from them yep. to make it worthwhile. And so I only really met them for an hour. I mean, I didn't want to ask any more of them than the minimal amount of time yep. that they had to give because it's enough to ask anyone for that yep. out of their day. And so um, so it was really only an hour to an hour and a half maybe of, of talking to them. But in that time, I really knew what I wanted to get from that interview so I went in very well armed I'd say. So did you were you looking for like with regards to to all of these women and to make your book you know the narrative of your book interesting and 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 readable because you know that the thing with a collection of interviews like this is that there still needs to be a narrative arc to your to your book um were you looking for not so you're obviously going in you're looking for points of difference as well as similarities would that be fair to say, with each of the women? Yeah, of course. I mean, the the great thing about women is they talk. And <laughs> the great thing about artists is they're so articulate about their experience. So I was pretty lucky. They're all incredibly intelligent, 
generous. They they knew this stuff too. I mean, this was. Um, I mean, I picked women who I already knew um, had some interest in this subject, and I already knew um, could speak well. Mm. And so uh, I was blessed with the the generosity. I think of. of the interview interviewees themselves already, but um, now I've forgotten your question. <laughs> of course, um, just with regards to you know to doing the interviews. I mean, you said that you sort of went into them knowing pretty much what you needed to get out of them, and I, I guess we, when you're doing a selection of interviews like this, you don't want the experience to all be the same because it's oh, not. So right, you were looking for a point of difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I have to admit that early on, I was just looking for people I felt that I could relate to. Yeah. So um, I probably wasn't so focused on that. But after a while, after realising that it was going to be a book, that's when I had to start thinking, okay, this book needs to not just speak to me, but it needs to speak more broadly to lots of people and to lots of different experiences. Um, and so I think the women just in, inherently in bringing their, their life to the page brought points of difference. Mm. Um, obviously they're all working in different mediums, art forms. Yeah. So that in itself has a whole different set of challenges dependent on whether you're someone who is expected to be in rehearsals for 14 hours a day yeah. compared to someone who is really just reliant on trying to get some time to sit down with a you know, notepad and pen yeah. for and scratch away on their own. So... That in itself was different. I was looking for women at different stages of their career and different stages in terms of their children's ages. So I looked for women whose children had already grown up yep. as well as those with babies because I wanted I wanted there to be hope that they were the other end. <laughs> no, I'm being a bit, um. <laughs> being a bit cynical. But I, I mean, I, I wanted to get that full picture and so that women could see that you know, that, that things do change yeah. and that there are women who manage to keep going despite all those years of child-rearing and have come out the other end with um, not only having maintained their career but also having raised some really great kids who didn't suffer because <laughs> their mother was also trying to be an artist. So what would you say was the main thing that you learned? I mean, because that's a beautiful thing about I It's one of the main reasons that I love um, writing articles and researching and interviewing is that I pretty much have just put myself through uni about 17 times with all the people that I've <laughs> yeah. spoken to. Um, yeah. And you learn something all the time. You get to talk to experts and, and you learn. So what's the main thing you've learned from having all of these conversations? Yeah, I mean, I'm so lucky in that way. I mean, I've really felt that with every single interview that I did, I just got a whole new perspective on um, how to move forward. And I think probably the main thing I learned that I think is important for all writers is that you have to give yourself permission to create. No yeah. one else is going to give that to you, no one's going to hand it to you on a platter, the world won't give it to you, you know, your kids aren't going to give it to you, so you have to hold tight to your sense that it is a valid thing to do and that you give yourself permission to do it and sometimes that means having to be very hard on yourself but 
you have to do that and you have to be unforgiving about it. Mm. So I think that's what I saw in meeting with these women. And that can be confronting. I mean, people do it in different ways. Some of them were literally trying to write with their foot on the rocker, whereas, you know, some were employing nannies or... Mm. Um, and some had full-time partners at home. I mean, everyone had very different situations, but whatever their situations were, what I saw is that they'd found a way to give themselves that permission. Mm. So if you know, if you were going to write another uh, non-fiction book, like what do you think the secret is to, to writing one that really works? I feel like now that the only secret is having a really a really strong driving interest in the subject mm. because that's the thing that will get you through. And I think that's probably true whether you've got jobs, children, anything that all of those things that can be a barrier to getting to the writing. You, If you feel strongly enough about the subject, you'll usually find a way to dodge all those, <laughs> to dodge the obstacle course. Well, I mean, you know, as a writer, you've got a full-time job, you've got a family, you've got the housework, as we've discussed. Um, How do you manage to fit it all in? Are you one of those, you know, pie chart, spreadsheet, to-do list people or are you you more sort of flexible or how do you you fit it in? What do you do? How do you manage it? Sometimes I don't. I mean, sometimes (laughs) I've sat, you know, I've had weeks or months where I've barely written at all Mm. and... But I also know about myself now that that's actually um, a recipe for getting really miserable Mm. and not being a very nice parent. So I think um, now, no, I'm not a, um, I'm not an organised person actually. I mean, I'm an organised person at work, but not so much outside of it. But I think um, for me, I now know how, where and how I write best. And I think if you know that, if you're someone who knows that you write best in the mornings and you're good at getting up at 5am and doing it that way, which lots and lots of people I know do, particularly mothers, Mm. then I think you just have to be really disciplined about setting the alarm for five o'clock and giving yourself those two hours before the rest of the household wakes up. Mm. If you're someone who knows that you've got the stamina to write at night, then you do that. And that's that's true of me. I write at night. So do I. Largely between the hours of... 10 p.m. and midnight. Yeah, look at us. We're on. We're online together. We should be chatting. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, we yeah. shouldn't no, because then we'd never get anything many, done. <laughs> no, no, but it is amazing how many emails you get from women at that time of night. Yeah, yeah. most amazing. <laughs> because that's when they get stuff done. And so, I mean, I, that's pretty much how I do it. I I read a lot when I can because I don't think you can write unless you're reading. No, I certainly can't. Some Maybe some can, but you've got to stay engaged in reading all the time, I think, to sort of keep feeling like you're in, you're in the conversation of yeah. writing. Yeah. And I, I just grab moments here and there. I keep a journal with me all the time. So I, that was the other thing that came out of the interviews is um, all of them have found really pragmatic ways of working. So, I mean, Joanna Murray-Smith, she's extraordinary and so incredibly prolific and can literally have her laptop on the bench top and be tapping on her laptop while fielding questions from her kids, answering phone calls and cooking the dinner. I mean, and I think if you've got to a point like like she has where she's very confident in knowing what she wants to do and then it's almost 
she's almost just doing it in a very workmanlike way and getting the words down. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty much what it comes down to, isn't it? It sort of has to, and that's the benefit of being really time pressurised is you learn to work pragmatically, you learn to work fast, you ditch the luxuries of atmosphere. <laughs> you know, it used to be lovely sitting in cafes and, you know, getting around to it by your fifth latte, but it doesn't <laughs> happen like that anymore. <laughs> So, I mean, there are great benefits if you can harness it well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I know that you've had a very, very busy existence and I really appreciate you fitting us in. It's been a really interesting conversation and I'm sure that um, there are lots of people out there in the same boat who will get a lot out of your book. So thanks again for your time, Rachel. Well, thanks for such a lovely chat. It was great. Great interview, Al. Yeah, I, like, I really um, enjoyed the conversation and, you know, anything, any conversation like that is always going to be a conversation, not mm. an interview. So I hope that um, I hope that everyone listening, and I mean, I'd really like to know what our listeners think. Like, I, I you know, I, do you experience the same conundrums mm. that we talked about in the interview or what? You know, let us know what you think. Send us an email. I'd love to hear from you. Now, well, let's move on to our app pick for the week which is Crystal Nose, as in crystal, like, you know, the stuff that you drink out of. Nose, as in, um, you know, <laughs> K-N-O-W-S dot com. It's a bit weird. Um, so this is really interesting. It's a bit weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds a bit weird. <laughs> it's really interesting because, and I'm kind of almost scared to use it, but I will because it's so odd. But basically, it's it touts itself as the biggest improvement to email since spell check. So what it does is it it kind of is this brain in the back of your email. So if, for example, I'm emailing you and I start saying, hey, Al, um, let's organise to do, record our podcast next week, blah, 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 and I finish writing the email, what happens after I finish writing is I get Crystal, who's somewhere in my computer, <laughs> to check it. But she doesn't just check it for spelling or punctuation or grammar or anything like that. She actually has analysed your communication from your online presence. So through your Facebook posts and through social media and probably even through um, the G- if we both send use Gmail, it can analyse your method of com- uh, communication and it will say to me, Alison really prefers shorter sentences or more direct communication. Oh, stop it. So we suggest that you change it to this. Let's no. record our podcast. Yep. Mm, freaky. Oh, no. Freaky. Why would you want – no, really? Some people. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Wow, that's kind of weird. Like, really? Okay, yeah. great. Uh, I wonder what it would say about me, though. That's kind of fascinating. I wonder what kind of um, – I wonder what kind of communication I prefer. I know, because it, it, that's what it does. It translates your communication style into the recipient's communication style. So weird. Oh, that's so kind of creepy. I know. And it says, Crystal is a new technology built upon an ancient principle. Communicate with empathy. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, let All us right. 
good. Awesome. I, I know, weird, right? So mm. let's move on to something else. Basically, this is our working writer's tip for the week. And we've we've got a really interesting email from Simon. So thank you, Simon. Thank you. For, Hi, Simon. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We won't read the whole thing. But Simon has said... Um, uh, I really want you to say Simon says, please. <laughs> Can you just do that for me? Just... Simon says. Oh, of course. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. Uh, so Simon basically talks about the fact that it can be difficult to get into the world of publishing. And he is a working writer and he has said uh, that it's not that he doesn't want to write. He certainly does want to write. And it's not that um, uh, he says, I'm doing pretty well for myself and am confident with my writing. Yet as someone who has yet to finish a book, there is still a significant chunk of me that believes it will never happen. That is not because I don't believe I can do it, but because the industry seems to be complicated and convoluted and I'm worried I'll never be able to negotiate it. The writing industry, particularly the publishing industry, feels like a maze, something where you have to go through a crazy amount of challenges, none of which are easily available nor explainable. To me, the whole industry often feels impenetrable. This is even the case when I go to writers' festivals or listen to your podcast. The information is often murky and the tips often contradictory. I often just feel it's so difficult. And he's saying, you know, of course, every industry is difficult. But um, he also says that that even when you finish your work, it feels like there's never any guarantee that anyone will look at it. The publishing industry is often presented as a world where you have to know someone to be able to ever get a look in. So... And he, he's also making a point that he's not down about it. He's just trying to be factual about the way the industry is portrayed. What do you think, Al? You know, I can understand where Simon is coming from mm-hmm. to a degree because I think um, it's it's like anything. I think if you feel like you're outside something, it can often look like, an, like Mount Everest to get into it. Um, and I think that it probably, like, it's not easy. It never was never going to be easy. It's never been presented as easy. I think if you want to be a published author, you need to recognise the fact that it's really hard work. It really is. Like, And, you know, sometimes you have to write three or four books before you might even get to the point where you've written something that someone is going to look at. However, I would say that I think that there's so much – like. I honestly think that there's so much information out there that every publisher has a website that tells you exactly what you need to do to get your to get your manuscript, you know, submitted and seen by somebody. They have opened the doors in such a way that they have Friday pitches where you can email your first chapter through and it will be looked at. You know, I, I do feel that they like the traditional publishing has tried or is trying to be as transparent as possible and I think that the author has to take on some responsibility for learning that stuff and for networking, for actually like going to things, talking to people. It's it's If you go to writers' festivals, I think that you need to sit there and, and take in what's being said. And, you know, every person's experience is different and I understand that and sometimes that can seem contradictory. But at the end of the day, everyone who is a published author has worked extremely hard, has written an excellent book and has sent it in to someone to be looked at. Mm. I mean, that's that's pretty much how it works, you know, like I think. What do you think? 
I agree with Simon in that there's a lot of information out there and some of it can be contradictory and murky. I think that that's also because that's that happens when you're reading advice from people who don't necessarily know what they're talking about. Mm. With the world of blogging, anyone can publish anything. So yeah. there, there are some people out there giving advice who probably shouldn't be giving advice or, you know, they can give advice, but you need to have a filter as to who you want to get your advice from. Mm. Get your advice from reputable, pe reputable people or people who have, you know, made it, uh, not people who who haven't yet. It's fine to, to learn from their experiences and understand them, but you need to actually make sure that to sift through all of that information and the murkiness, you need to be hearing from the right people. No, that's number one. Mm. Number two is make sure you feel finish the book. When you finish the oh, book, yeah. you actually have something that you can give to people. People don't want to read your first, you know, chapter or your first six chapters even. They want to, especially if it's fiction, they want to fin read the finished book. So they're not even going to it's impenetrable, yes, until you finish the book. But number yeah. is it, you can't you can't even turn up to the starting line until you have a finished manuscript yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Like if you give up while you're still writing the manuscript, then you haven't given yourself any kind of chance whatsoever. You have to have a finished book mm. before you even, like, turn up to the starting line. Yeah, really. and that's when we're talking about fiction. Yeah, fiction particularly, yeah. yeah. Non-fiction, slightly different. But yeah. um, the other thing, number three, is network your ass off. And mm. and even if, if it's going to writers' festivals, it's not just sitting there passively and listening to the authors. I mean, you no. can do that too, obviously, but it's, yeah. it's actually being active and networking. And I think one of the most, the single most underutilised networking tool, because people go, I don't go to writers' festival, I'm too far from writers' festival, whatever. The single most underutilised writing tool, and I'm honestly not just saying this because we run courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, but is when you do a course, not only obviously do you meet people who are like-minded, you get access every single week to that amazing author, editor or publisher who is taking the course. Mm. And if you continue that relationship, that so you start, that's where you start your relationship. And if you continue that relationship with them, that's incredibly powerful networking. And I think that it's one of the most underutilised because, you know, it people don't think of it that way. They just think of it as a learning experience where it's, it's much more than just a learning experience. And I know it might sound like I'm just saying that because we run courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, but I honestly believe I, I, I just see it happen. I see, I uh, you know, students end up getting recommended by their teacher to publishers. So, yeah. But also, can I also add too? I I think that you, the other underutilized thing is networking with other writers. Mm. If you network, like I, I saw a great tweet yesterday. There was a, a, a discussion on Twitter. It was one of the hashtags. It was about screenwriting. Mm -hmm. And there was someone had sent out a tweet saying, you know, basically it was about how you network with people at your level. You all get better. You all share information. You all hire each other once you get into positions. And Absolutely. that's how screenwriting works. And it's, But it's mm -hmm. how all sorts of publishing works in the sense that, you start out together, you share information, you talk to each other and and you sort of like you you often see groups of people coming out as one because that's how they 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 support each other and you know to to get up that mountain together and so you know when you go to writers festivals, yes, sit there and listen to the information, yes, you know talk to publishers or whatever if they're available to you, talk to the person next to you mm. you know you're all there together, you're all interested. 
you know, find some like-minded kindred spirits among the, the people, the writers around you and support each other to yeah. get there. It's not just the way screenwriting works. It's not just the way publishing works. It's the way life works. It's the way everything works. Exactly. Like everybody's sort of like, yeah, you don't never, ever dis- disregard the person standing next to you. You know, the, they can be just as, as as important and fabulous for you as the person that's above you on the ladder. So thank you for that food for thought, Simon. And this wasn't necessarily advice specifically for you, Simon, but we really appreciate you making those comments. Because yeah, because I think, lots of people, yeah. uh, you know, if you've got the question or you've got the comment, then the chances are that lots and lots of people are thinking the same thing, which is why we want you to write to us. Yes. So, and you can do that podcast at writerscentre.com.au. And you can also find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. But this brings us to the end of our episode this week, Al. What are you going to be doing for the next week or so? Uh, well, I'm, I've got a really good week ahead because, you know, clearly I have time to do stuff again, so I'm very excited. So <laughs> I'm actually working um, this week. I'm fine-tuning uh, a workshop that I'll be doing at the Sydney Writers' Festival mm. this year on May the 20th. Um, and it is, you know, it ties in extremely well with our interview today because it is basically about how to have – how to find time or find time, I love that expression, how to make time to write when you have a family. Mm. So I'm going to be talking about sort of my experience of writing around my children for the last 12 years but with lots and lots of tips and, of course, just talking about writing in general, some of the myths, some of the things, answering lots and lots of questions. So, you know, if you're in Sydney on May the 20th, please come along. It would be awesome to see you. Wonderful. So I'll put the link in the show notes for the um, workshop. Definitely. And you? What are you doing? I will be uh, travelling. I'm heading to Melbourne this week. Oh, what a surprise. Yeah. (laughs) So yet on another plane, train and automobile, um, visiting our Melbourne campus, of course, and uh, teachers there and stuff like that. So it should be fun, but also running that event with General Assembly on disruption in journalism. So that should be fun. But Fantastic. Thank you to everyone for listening and also for your ratings and reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate them. If you can take 30 seconds to give us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd uh, be ever so grateful. And um, until next week, really, we look forward to chatting to you. We do. Good luck with your writing. <laughs>